0: Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book connected to Africa and hear from the author. In this programme, that author is Martin Plout, who co-wrote a book about who rules South Africa, along with Paul Holden. It's an essential guide to power and politics in the South Africa of today and the challenges that the country and the ruling African National Congress face. Here's the interview. Sitting opposite me here in uh, Westminster, in the heart of London, is Martin Plout, one of the co-authors of Who Rules South Africa, along with Paul Holden. Now, Martin is an ex-colleague of mine from the BBC World Service, and uh, glad to have you here. And can you just kick off with telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book?
1: Well, I am a South African. I was born in Cape Town, uh, sadly, an extremely long time ago, in 1950. And grew up there. Spent the most formative years, of course, living under apartheid. And I was in Johannesburg during the Soweto uprising in 1976, which was a particularly formative period for me. I was particularly involved in the trade union movement, the South African, the rebirth of the South African black trade union movement, um, which I helped uh, try and do what I could to 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 really um, assist. And it was possibly uh, the most successful white student intervention there ever was in South Africa because within two years of us sort of in a cack-handed manner, uh, uh, trying to sort of suggest that this was a good idea, it was off and running and the people that we tried to help said, look, you know, I think you've done your bit, go away, you know nothing about this. And Boy, were they right. We knew nothing about trade unions, but we helped give people the confidence to rebuild the trade union movement and in that small way it was important. I then came to the UK, and I would have—I was going to do a final degree. I was going to go back to South Africa to work in the trade unions myself, but I fell in love with a British woman, and what can one say, one, mm-hmm. one remains. And I've remained in Britain ever since, first working for uh, briefly for mobile oil as an industrial relations advisor, then for about five years for the British Labour Party on Africa and the Middle East, which frankly taught me uh, a heck of a lot about Africa and a bit about the Middle East, since I knew not, almost nothing about either of those. And then I joined the BBC uh, in 1984, uh, working on Africa. And gradually, I've done all sorts of different jobs, enjoying myself. And I've been with the BBC ever since.
0: And uh, you, you, you're still very interested in South Africa and the, the organisations within it. We we're just discussing a. a just before we started recording how the ANC had its origins in a particular uh, delegation that came to, to, to Britain just before its official birth, which in your book you, you note is going to be, uh, we're, gonna, we're coming up to the 100th anniversary, it's going to be December this year, and it was the coming together of three different organisations, uh, KSATU, the South African Communist Party, and this new organisation, ANC, which was formed then, and, and that's been the heart of this, of a movement as much as, as anything organisational.
1: Indeed. I mean, the, the ANC traces its route back to uh, 1912, although, as you say, I think actually there were groups that came together earlier which fed into that. And uh, the trade union movement uh, is, in fact, even older uh, elements of it, and although it has been reshaped many times through repression and through the collapse of organizations. And then, the subsequently, the South African Communist Party, which was founded in the 1920s. And it has been this strange relationship between these three organizations uh, which who came together in a difficult marriage, really, in the 1950s. Uh, the circumstances were peculiar and very important because, of course, the uh, National Party had come to power in 1948, removing a conservative and fairly racist party but bringing in a virulently racist white party, which was determined to bring in apartheid. And that forced the ANC, which had been a sort of Christian nationalist organization and a pretty moderate bunch, frankly, um, who had bumbled along from the 1912 uh, until the 1950s, desperately trying to get white attention and petitioning them, politely requesting, and this kind of thing. In 1948 they then had a government which wasn't interested in anything to do with with black people and they were forced to fight. And in that fight they then linked up with the unions and the Communist Party and that formed the movement that really finally uh, brought about change in South Africa.
0: And this movement is at the heart of things now, hence the title of the book Who Rules South Africa. Tell us a little bit about um, about the title, about the question, and what, why you thought that this was such an essential time to ask this question.
1: Well, it is a bit of a cheeky question, since on the one hand it's absolutely obvious who rules South Africa. It's the African National Congress and President Jacob Zuma. I mean, what, what's there to understand about the question? But the, it is, an, in my view, an appropriate question, because behind the obvious facade of power and the presidency and the judiciary and all the other instruments of the state and the instruments of um, the legal structure you have other forces and it is those other forces that in a sense in two layers have a direct influence on power so the first level of power is held by the formal structures the second level of power is held by those groups that came together to overthrow apartheid, so the, the Communist Party and the African uh, and the Communist Party and the trade union movement, because although the trade unions and the communists never stand for parliament, they they support the ANC. They are nonetheless in a, in what's called the tripartite alliance, and that tripartite alliance has all the real discussions, which don't really take place in parliament anymore. In a sense, the influence of parliament <coughs> has been sucked out and reduced and it has been transferred to the tripartite alliance. So the second level, second tier of uh, of influence is that. But there's then a third level of influence which one has to uh, acknowledge, which is at the informal level of influence, which is extremely powerful. And of these, there are many elements. Um, One is, I'm afraid, corruption you can frankly buy influence in South Africa today. I know that's a rather powerful way of putting it, and it's perhaps a bit brutal, but it is absolutely clear. And if one looks at the deep depth of corruption that there is at every level of society, from the highest to the smallest municipality in South Africa, you can buy influence by basically providing uh, cash in return for tenders in return for goods that you supply all these things now now have a strong influence second area that i would look at is the role of organized crime which is uh, now strong in south africa there are many organizations from the italian mafia through to the triads who are operational and who again use the strength of their influence to uh, have a hold over south africa now by this i'm not suggesting that south africa has become like some of those uh, Latin American narco states where there is frankly nothing i mean the state is just a facade really for the for these that is not the case but they do have an influence and the third um, source of influence of course is the the old white elite who still maintain a powerful hold over south africa through their money and through their connections and all of those are informal forms of influence. There are others as well, for example, on the streets. People go onto the streets and demonstrate, and we can perhaps talk about that a bit later. Mm -hmm, But those are the informal forms of of power which people exercise on forms of governments. And if you want to understand why certain decisions are taken in South Africa, you must not only look at the formal and the secondary relationships with the tripartite alliance, but you must also look at the informal levels of influence.
0: It's a bit like um, if you pardon the the comparison I've I've just got back from China and it's obvious there that behind a monolithic Chinese communist party there are so many different competing factions trying to get their voice heard and representing different interests within Absolutely. the state and also different viewpoints about where they should go now uh, in south africa this has obviously popped up in recent history several times not least with uh, for instance the the uh, the f- i don't know whether to call it a feud but the the ousting of mbeki mbeki uh, by zuma's lot and then obviously more recently we've had the uh, youth league has resurfaced it uh, resurfaced under Julius uh, Malema, and they've been actually representing a whole different faction within the ANC. So so can you t- give us an idea of where we are now? I mean, you, you've given an idea about where we've gone as a movement in the 20th century, but now where are we?
1: Well, there's one overwhelming issue now before South Africans, which is who's going to be the president at the end of this year, by which I mean the president of the African National Congress and the president of the country, because it would be Theoretically possible, and it has for very brief periods, been the situation where there were two different people. Mm-hmm. But it's extremely difficult to have the the ruling party governed by one person and the country governed by somebody else. So in essence, if President Zoom was to lose the fight, which is on as we speak, mm-hmm. uh, for control of the African National Congress, then he would almost certainly lose the presidency of the country as well. He knows this, and every ounce of his energy is now uh, turned to this question. And he has been working for a long time on this on this issue, and I think, and this is just a prediction and of course maybe wrong, but I think that uh, he will win in December at the ANC conference for one reason, and that is that the Zulu vote inside the African National Congress, and Jacob Zuma is a Zulu, has grown substantially, and the his rivals who rely on the Kosa vote um, in the Eastern Cape rather than the Zulus of KwaZulu Natal um, have slumped uh, as causes gradually move away from the ANC and begin to see it is not although it was the, the they were the heart of the organisation people like Nelson Mandela of our Zulus and Nelson Mandela are causes and, uh, are and uh, you know it's that it was their organisation so to speak although it was an Organization, which was above tribal mm-hmm. uh, relations, it nonetheless did have strong tribal links, mm-hmm. um, and so with the growth of the Zulu vote uh, and and the, and the support for Jacob Zuma being so powerful in in KwaZulu Natal, uh, I think that he will win the uh, the battle for the leadership of the ANC. But it's not a foregone conclusion.
0: How will this actually affect South Africans? I mean, what is at stake for them?
1: Well, in a sense, it's the the Zuma presidency and what it has stood for. I mean, if uh, Nelson Mandela, the first president of South Africa in the democratic era, was somebody who stood for reconciliation, Uh, Thabo Mbeki stood for uh, the rise of the black middle class, Um, then Jacob Zuma, in a sense, has stood for the redistributive elements within the ANC, saying we can't just share it out amongst the narrow elite who've been won over by the white elite. It was that, in a sense, is the critique that came from the unions and from the Communist Party. They said, yes, we've all done very well politically, but where have we gone economically? We've Mm. gone nowhere.
0: It's worth saying at this point that that South Africa of today is less equal in some ways uh, economically than the South Africa that came out of the years of apartheid.
1: Extraordinary! That is absolutely true. The Gini coefficient which measures this shows that South Africa is less equal now than it was, uh, which is, is amazing. Uh, but wh- And one of the criticisms of the left has been that th- that, that was what Tabo and Behi stood for. It was the black, new m- black middle class, which, although it's been re- rising rapidly, is still a small percentage of the population. And Jacob Zuma's brief, so to speak, was to widen that, in essence, he's failed. Uh, he hasn't managed to do that. It's, it's an extremely difficult thing to do because, I mean, who's prepared to share when you've only just won a bit of the pot?
0: And, and it's still not a massive pot to go around.
1: It's not a massive pot, and particularly at a time when South Africa is economically finding it increasingly difficult to make its way in the world, which is extraordinary because you have a situation where South Africa has uh, sits on most of the minerals of the world apart from oil, has come through a commodities boom mm-hmm. and yet still hasn't managed to grow. So South Africa is not in a good place economically. It's being undercut economically by the other BRICs, particularly India and China. You can produce in India and China at a third to a quarter of the price of manufactured goods in South Africa. That's according to the African Development Bank. Mm-hmm. Now, that is an extremely difficult thing to fight against. So South African manufacturing jobs have been lost... The mining sector is there, but is not growing. Agriculture is pretty stagnant. Where is the new growth? Where are the new jobs? And that has left vast numbers of people. 40% of young people are unemployed. Perhaps 37%, 36% of all adults are unemployed. And the vast majority of the unemployed are black. Now, a lot of those people then turn around to the, to the ANC and say, well, what have you given us?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, if we refocus this on the on the who rules South Africa question, uh, and, and we're looking very much at the ANC as the organisation with its with the reins in its hands, um, do you think that that some of the the fact that these challenges haven't been met in a successful way simply points to the fact that this is yet another um, liberation movement coming to power and then finding it, it a little bit harder once it gets in than it did to actually overthrow whatever regime it was counter against.
1: Well, if you look through Africa since the 60s, you find this pattern repeated time and again, that liberation movements or even political parties, where they haven't actually had to fight for uh, for their <coughs> position, uh, come to power. They believe that holding power will do the trick. They then uh, gradually see that it's exceptionally difficult to rebuild the state and particularly to rebuild the economy. Uh, it becomes mired in corruption, uh, you get a dissent, uh, economic growth stagnates, there's a coup, repression, dictatorship and finally then some catalytic moment, which in most African countries happened about 10-15 years ago with pressure from the IMF and World Bank and finally they get, they get back on the growth path. Now if you look at Africa in the last 10 years they've grown quite well. Um, but South Africa, in a sense, hasn't, is a latecomer to that whole process because while as most African states began that process in the 1960s, South Africa began it in the 1990s, mm-hmm. mid-1990s. So they're 30 years behind the curve, so to speak. And um, is South Africa going to go down the same route? That is the question that we don't know at this moment. That is, We are on the cusp of answering that question, but we don't know which way it's going to go.
0: It's part of the answer to do with... What happens with the ANC? We've been talking about a lot of the factions within there, representing quite quite drastically different viewpoints and, and different ways forward. Obviously, when you're in opposition to a whole regime, there are ways in which you can coalesce around that. But when you're actually faced with the challenges of, of real leadership in a company where you have, you know, pluralism uh, and you have viewpoints as different as Mbeki's and Zuma's. that's when you start to maybe form into other groups. Uh, Do you see some kind of hope in in a process like that, should it happen?
1: Well, the the difficult transition the ANC has to make is, and it's an exceptionally painful one for themselves, is moving from a situation where they see themselves as a liberation movement who, in a sense, bring together all of the oppressed, whether they're black, white, Indian, coloured, In one organization to fight the regime now in some countries it was a colonial regime in South Africa it was an internal form of colonialism with apartheid and they succeeded Mm -hmm. but then then of course inevitably the next question comes which is can you bring hold that alliance together can you genuinely be the representatives of the the people of South Africa when class issues begin to raise their heads And in a sense, that's the issue. That's where we are now. Now, -hmm. what you desperately need in South Africa is another party which can take on the ANC um, and challenge them for political uh, leadership. Uh, And the most obvious way that would happen would be for the ANC to split so that you'd have a more conservative, uh, shall we say, right-wing party or centre-right-wing party and a left-wing party Um, of which the unions and the Communist Party could support and then they could fight for for power in the ordinary way and you'd then have a more more or less normal uh, situation or comparable situation to, say, Western Europe or America or anywhere else um, where you have a left-right split and people fight about policies uh, and you can have a balance of power and so on and so on. At the moment there isn't a balance of power you have one party which tries to encompass all of these different tensions and that produces a terribly difficult situation.
0: And how does the electorate see things? Would they be ready for parties presenting themselves on a much more political basis, policy by policy, as opposed to being able to call on this this grand touchstone of being able to say, we are the ones that fight for the oppressed?
1: So far, the answer to that has been uh, no. That... uh, People see themselves as still uh, beholden to the ANC. I mean, Mm -hmm. rightly so. I mean, the ANC fought for 100 years. Well, not quite 100 years, but nearly 100 years. Best part of a century. Best part of a century for the rights of the majority of the population. And you don't forget that in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And people know that the ANC have, and one shouldn't forget this, brought millions of people, housing, electricity, water, sanitation, schools, all these things which they didn't have before. Now, you don't forget that in a hurry either. Mm-hmm. So there's there's this, this gradual process of people beginning to say, well, hang on, you are deeply corrupt. You haven't done a lot for us. You have done some things, but not a lot. Um, you know, my son is unemployed or my daughter is unemployed. We can't get on. We're still sitting in the same mess that we were when apartheid ended. More or less, things are a little bit better, but not a lot. It's a balance of forces, and people have... All persuasions, everywhere in the world, voters are shrewd, and they make up their mind on a balance of issues. It's not a simple question for anybody. Uh, Now, of course, we also have other opposition parties. It's not just the ANC. South Africa Mm -hmm. is a multi-party situation. And one of the things that has happened since the end of apartheid is that one party has really gradually uh, become the dominant opposition party. That's the Democratic Alliance. I think it had 1.6% at the first election. In other words, they got nowhere. Mm -hmm. In the last election, they got more than a quarter of the vote. Mm -hmm. And they are beginning to win over a black majority. They have more uh, black voters than they do white voters Mm -hmm. now supporting them. And they're beginning to win through amongst, shall we say, the, uh, the sons of the new elite. So, sons and daughters of the new elite. So you'll find young people who are coming through university, young black people who are coming through university, beginning to say, "Well, hang on, you know, I, this, this old ANC business. You know, I was born after apartheid mm. ended. I don't hold anything. You know, I don't owe, owe this to to anybody. I'm going to stand on my merits. I don't have to use my political connections or the colour of my skin to deserve to have a place in South Africa and to fight for a place in South Africa. I will stand on my merits, and that is what the the Democratic Alliance offers them."
0: But this isn't just a question then about parties. It's a question that goes into the initial ways in which the inequalities of the past were being dealt with. And you talk a lot in the book about black economic empowerment. It's one of uh, it's one of the you know the core policies of the of the early years of the post-apartheid state. And obviously Mbeki gets very associated with this. And as you say, it, it's almost a reaction to that that Zuma comes in. But um, you know the fixes that fix the things that were wrong with apartheid are very different to fix things for the new generation who see all sorts of other things ready uh, all sorts of things wrong with the way that South South Africa is functioning
1: Absolutely that's absolutely right and black economic empowerment was and still is very important because uh, in, in a sense the deal that was done at the end of apartheid because one shouldn't forget that the ANC didn't win the battle to hold power militarily which is what they'd always assumed they'd assumed they would fight their way into Pretoria flags held high AK-47, that's how they take part. They didn't. They had a negotiated settlement with the previous government. That left them with far less room for manoeuvre. They had won politically, but what they, in a sense, the unspoken deal with the white elite was this. Black people now have political control, but whites will retain the economic control that they had and whatever whatever they had in the past, so all of the uh, economic goodies, so to speak, remain with the whites and are only gradually shared out to a small percentage of the blacks. That is where the black economic empowerment uh, program of the ANC came or comes in, because they then said, well, yes, but we can't just leave the you know all the top people in a firm or all the top people in uh, government positions. As whites, we now are going to set quotas in essence, and it's, it's a crude system, but you say, well, you know if you, you, you we expect you to reflect the, the uh, color of in your company, we expect you to reflect the, the proportion of the people in South Africa. So the majority of top positions should be for black people. Mm-hmm. And you can see why that was necessary. But the difficulty with this is that if you are a young white, woman or a young white man or even a young colored or or indian uh, somebody of indian extraction you discover all of a sudden that you are over co- your quota isn't there mm-hmm. because you you basically there are too many people of your particular ethnic group so no matter how good you are you're told sorry you cannot have a top position either in government or in the private sector well what does that leave you with and you then also find I mean, some absolutely ludicrous decisions were taken. Uh, I mean, South Africa had a huge crisis of electricity supply um, a few years ago. And one of the reasons was that the Electricity Supply Corporation, ESCOM, decreed that they would only give jobs to engineers who were black women. There were no black women engineers. Mm -hmm. So those jobs just became vacant. And Mm. surprise, surprise electricity supply gradually failed Mm -hmm. now you you know it's it's always I'm not arguing against black economic empowerment but it has to be undertaken with a certain certain care and if you use it too bluntly you end up with these kind of idiotic decisions and uh, of course a lot of the young black people today coloured people, white people today say well hang on you know I want to stand on my own feet and of course, you have to make a transition then between people who believe that they they must use the black economic empowerment stepladder and other people who say, no, I'll stand on my own feet. and That's the difficult shift to make.
0: Do these other racial groups feel disenfranchised by the whole system? Uh, I mean, in a city like London, where we find ourselves now, it's, it's no surprise to find that a lot of other young South Africans took the path that you took when you were younger and have ended up here looking for their fortune, whether temporarily or permanently?
1: Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, I had a young white South African uh, son of a friend of mine who came to, to live with me for six months a few years ago because he wanted to join the army and found as a white that he had absolutely no way of serving his country. So he came and he joined the British army and his final interview to get into the British Army was in Afrikaans, the language of uh, white, many white South Africans, because his officer was a South African too. There are 800 uh, South Africans in the British Army, mm-hmm. uh, along with lots of Ghanaians and Nepalese. And Fijians, yes, Indeed, yes. Yes, everyone. Yes. <coughs> but, yeah, I mean, so there are a lot of... Uh, it's estimated that something like a, white, a million South Africans have left the country since the end of apartheid, and taking with them, of course, vital skills and um, capital. So that has been an exodus that South Africa would ill afford.
0: Can ill afford, but there would be an argument uh, to say it's not quite as bad if people are coming through from, for instance, the previously disenfranchised races in South Africa. What evidence is there that that's happening? You often hear scare stories about the state of, of education for poor blacks, for instance.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is possibly one of the greatest tragedies that has befallen South Africa since the end of apartheid is that the education system now is, by the government's own admission, worse than it was under apartheid. And that's hard to believe because apartheid education was designed by the white elite to actually disenfranchise black people. It was designed to keep them down. Now, how can you possibly have a situation where even that education system was better than the one that is now the government is pouring money into? Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid the answer is complex and uh, has something to do with corruption uh, and other things to do with the uh, trade union movement, the teaching union, which essentially insisted that there should be an end to all the inspectorate and an end to the old teachers' training colleges at the end of apartheid. And these two measures ensured that teachers, frankly, taught when they wanted to, and if they didn't feel like teaching, there was no inspectorate to hold them to account. And um, there were also repeated cases, I mean, not just a few, of uh, particularly male teachers having sexual relations with their, uh, their chil- the children in their, in their care, Um, of, you know, just the most appalling behaviour by the teaching staff. On top of this, there was a a form of a new curriculum, I think it was called intuitive um, teaching, but I I can't remember the exact phrase, which essentially said all you had to do was draw the knowledge out of the pupil, that you didn't have to give the pupil anything. They knew it already. You just give them the tools and they will do it. If you're sitting in a poor, impoverished... School in the rural areas of South Africa. There is no resource base on which these people can draw. These are not rich kids who have the internet to play with, every book, every book they could want. These are kids who whose parents have possibly never seen a book, and you're telling them that you don't have. You just draw it out of them. It was absolute nonsense, and the end result is vast numbers of children who are have had an impoverished education, and it is an absolute tragedy.
0: This seems emblematic of some of the challenges that have been unmet that we've been talking about before. Uh, But then going back to what you were just saying about what's happened in other post-liberation African countries where there's been this period of trying to fix things, a bit of turmoil, perhaps a bit of outside intervention or trying to draw inspiration for elsewhere and then a reconfiguring of the system. Do you see any of that on the horizon in South Africa? And I know that that crosses a few of the things that we've already touched across, but it is... I, I don't at the
1: moment. I mean, uh, South Africa is in a period of instability and uh, decline and in crisis, but there isn't an obvious way forward. Nobody can see where things are going. But you may recall that only a few weeks ago, the police opened fire on mm-hmm. uh, miners at, in Marikana, in mine which was owned by the Lonmin Corporation formerly the Lonroe company uh, based in Britain and uh, miners were in a sense this was emblematic of the problem South African faces because the miners felt that the unions were no longer negotiating sufficiently directly for them because they were spending all their time talking to the government because they were in alliance with the government Uh, ...that the companies didn't have their interests at heart... ...and some of the most uh, wealthy, black, new middle class... ...were in fact owned big chunks of these companies. Mm -hmm. Now you can imagine, in in those circumstances... ...you have huge alienation of the men... ...these were men, on the rock face... ...who were earning a pittance... ...working uh, terribly tough conditions... And they just had enough. And the whole situation boiled over. They refused to negotiate through all of the legal channels. They sat on a hill, armed themselves with spears and sticks, and refused to negotiate. They said, give us this sum of money or nothing. Mm-hmm. And when they finally there was a final confrontation with the police, they charged the police lines. The police hadn't fired, and there were 34 of them were dead on the ground. Mm-hmm. They cannot go around treating your own citizens as the enemy and shooting them in cold blood. And that is what what appears to have happened. There's a commission of inquiry now. We'll find out more details, but that appears to have happened. That is just an indictment. But it does show you a gap between uh, the rulers of South Africa and the ruled, uh, which is hard to
0: overcome. Two other things struck me about that whole situation. One of them was that some of the living conditions... Uh, for the miners and the the whole migration, living in barracks. Uh, what's the word for it? It's not barracks, is it? That they use hostels. Hostels, yeah. It was very very similar to the whole setup under apartheid, and that was one of the things that that they were so angry about. And then the second thing was that uh, a few months before that, there was talk about the spectre of privatised uh, of um, of taking under public control a lot of the mining. Corporations, Partly because they felt as though they were underperforming, but partly because with high asset prices they felt as though this is something that we can actually take advantage of. And I remember listening to a chap on the BBC Today programme in early in the morning here in Britain, and he was explaining that uh, when asset prices are high, that's probably exactly the point at which you don't want to take over um an extraction business for the simple reason that they're high because it's very difficult to get at things and you need much more technical expertise. So it seemed like very much a, a kind of previous incarnation of, of the ANC's um, sort of uh, tactics for being able to squeeze more out of a company that obviously weren't applicable in these in this day and age.
1: It's uh, absolutely true, and uh, I mean both of those issues are, are very complicated ones. I mean, some of the uh, ordinary miners lived in hostels; others, of them lived in shanties outside the mines because they wanted to live with their families or with people that they made relationships since they came to the mines. And they live in some of the most appalling conditions. I've been to those uh, squatter camps mm-hmm. and they are without water, without sanitation, without electricity. They have almost nothing to recommend them. They're brutal and tough places and, and really appalling an indictment on any country. Um, but then, as you say, you have this strange situation where there's a push for nationalisation. But the, the important thing to know about that push for nationalisation of the mines is that it came from, from the right in the ANC, not from the left. The Communist Party opposed the nationalisation of the mines. That may seem peculiar, but there was a good reason for it. One of the reasons that the uh, mine owners, many of whom were were black and had been given them during the uh, black economic empowerment process, one of the reasons many of them wanted to have the mines nationalised, which you would imagine was the last thing they wanted, was because they'd been given them only as loans. They had to repay those loans. And some of the, the, the mm. companies had been performing particularly badly. And a lot of the companies were, frankly, illiquid, if not bust. And uh, I'm not saying this applies to Lonmin or Marikana, but they, it was certainly true in a number of the other of mine, mining companies. The only way the, the new black elite saw them saving themselves was to have the assets nationalized at a price that they knew they could squeeze upward for political reasons, therefore bailing them out and removing this huge debt that they had from the loans they'd had to receive the assets in the first place so it was bizarrely a right-wing strategy not a left-wing strategy then the communist party said we are not in this to bail out people Mm -hmm. so uh, you had this peculiar situation of 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 what looks like a left-wing policy in fact being a right-wing one
0: Extraordinary. But this actually feeds into something else that's well worth talking about, and that is the, well, I mean, populism has never gone away. Um, and we saw that with Julius Malema. We saw that with various aspects of the ANC through the years, the Youth League, etc. There obviously is such bubbling discontent among such large sectors of what might have been previously parts of the ANC you know, electorate. Um, is somebody going to take not just a small bit of advantage of this, but actually build a whole movement around them?
1: So far, there has been nobody who's been able to mobilise this. There has been, as you say, a huge amount of discontent. Because in essence, what happens is that people find they they just cannot get the ear of their councillor or their member of parliament. There's a good reason for this. They do not have a member of parliament. There are members of parliament, but they are elected on a party list system, Mm -hmm. not on a constituency basis. So... Nobody can say, well, you know, this is my town, this is my MP. If this MP doesn't mend the roads, get the school repaired, do all the other things, I'm going to organise a boycott and that person is going to be out at the next election. You can't say that because people are voted on a list system where you have to vote out the whole of the ANC in order to get rid of the the non-existent MP who hasn't been uh, repairing your your roads or mending the school.
0: And of course they're beholden to the party bosses that decide the list and the order of
1: candidates. Exactly. So it has transferred the power from the electorate into the party system. Mm -hmm. So the only way people have got round that is to say, well, to go onto the streets. And they've built barricades, they've taken on the police, there've been clashes repeatedly. In fact, uh, my colleague Paul Holden who helped me write this book came across government statistics well tucked away which indicated that since 2008 more than 2 million South Africans 5% of the entire population have been involved in clashes with the police since 2008. So that is that is really an extraordinary level of unrest and anger in the population. Having said that these are, are invariably small scale local protests mm-hmm. nobody has found a way of mobilizing the dispossessed to to, you know give them a give them a phrase um and the one person who's tried to do this is julius Malema, who was mm-hmm. the former head of the anc's youth league who was kicked out for indiscipline essentially and uh, he's tried to appeal to these people but f- frankly he doesn't i think have the staying power or the network that south africa is a huge country you know it's, vast it's a thousand miles between uh, cape town and johannesburg uh, you, you try and you know keeping organizations together when you have those kind of mm. distances but to to operate on and um uh, so nobody has really taken this bubbling discontent and turned it into a movement that has not taken place might it The future is a closed <laughs> book, and uh, I, 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 but I think it will be extremely difficult.
0: Let's get back to the book and the big question. That, As you say, you know, it, it's, it's a bit cheeky, but um, you, you put that on the front of your book and people will ask, well, did you get any, anywhere closer to understanding uh, the answer to that question yourself? Who does run in South Africa?
1: Well, let's put it this way. We've we've come up with a uh, rather cheeky and perhaps sloganistic phrase which does answer it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the secure, securocrats and the fat cats. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's people in the security services, particularly the um, the intelligence uh, arms of both the state and of the ANC who have a huge say, and that's one of the things we haven't really talked about. But, I mean, Zuma and Becky fought each other with different sections of the state security apparatus mm-hmm. the intelligence services who fought each other and briefed against each
0: other zuma had a background in the zuma had yeah. a
1: background he was the head of intelligence for the anc in exile uh, and he had his loyal supporters and taban of course as the president had his own uh, all the states security apparatus at his disposal so that was that was one of the things so those group are one of them The other group that we said are the fat cats. These are the people we've been talking about, the new black elite. They have a big say in South Africa. Now, I would add to that the uh, white elite who continue to play a big role in South Africa very quietly. You can pay to now become a member of various clubs and organizations uh, which give you direct access to the ANC and to the ANC leadership. You can pay half a million rand. Um, to to sit at uh, uh, president zuma's table you can you can have his ear, you can meet him and mm-hmm. you can talk to him, and these people have a big say in the way in which policy is formed.
0: Looking back, uh, as you say, you were born a few decades ago. Um, if you' are in that same situation that you found yourself in, those few decades ago where you eventually came here and obviously fell in love with a British woman. If you forget about that bit and put yourself back in, in those shoes, but in modern-day South Africa, do you think it's a country that you would see yourself having a future in?
1: If I was the young person in South Africa, yes, I would. I, I think South Africa has, has a future. Uh, I think it's going through a difficult period. Uh, but South Africans are enormously resourceful, They do have a vast range of minerals at their disposal. They have a wonderful climate. They have good agricultural land Um, and a a genuine sense of uh, nationality and unity, which comes together over funny things like football, rugby. There is a patriotism that everybody shares, and everybody, although people can dislike each other they can hate each other they can fight each other there's terrible crime at the end of the day South Africans genuinely like each other better than they like the rest of the world
0: Mm. one final question then and that is if there was a favorite place that you have in Africa would you be able to point to it
1: yes that place is the city of Asmara in Eritrea
0: so a long way from uh, yeah
1: a very long way from South Africa. I mean, I, I chose it deliberately because there are lots of bits of South Africa that I love deeply. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would say it is Asmara <coughs> in, in Eritrea, a country that I am never allowed to visit any longer. Uh, it is reigned over by uh, the most dictatorial uh, president in Africa, Isaias who uh, The country is more tightly closed and regulated than North Korea. And it's an absolute tragedy. I, I like the Eritrean people; they're, they're wonderfully resourceful people, and um, it is uh, uh, one of the great sadnesses of my life that that I've I've known them, liked them, and yet they are now almost beyond
0: hope. What is it about Asmara? You've just said some things that the country's suffering from now, but uh, what is it that actually makes you think of Asmara? I mean, I, I gather the Italian architecture is 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 quite Absolutely extraordinary there.
1: Absolutely magnificent, and it's quite
0: high up. I'm right. It's correct?
1: high up. It's on a, on a plateau. Uh, it's cool. Uh, it's a wonderful place. Uh, the Art Deco architecture is world class. The Eritrean people are civilized, pleasant, energetic, and uh, to sit and have a coffee in a, a cappuccino in a restaurant or cafe in Eritrea is, is like sitting in a small town in Italy. And there's the same intellectual verve and vigour, and they're just lovely people. So that's the place I'd like to go to, but cannot.
0: I, I remember reading a, a Michaela Wrong's book about uh, Eritrea, and it was a tragic story. It but, is. But uh, a yeah. very well-recommended book. Anyway, Martin, thanks very much indeed for joining us and telling us about, uh, about your book. Thank you very much.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: And that was Martin Plout, one of the two authors of Who Rules South Africa. Remember that you can follow the New Books Network on Facebook and Twitter. But from here in London, have a good day.